Welcome to episode 23 of the Anxious Poets podcast. I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. I was looking today and I realised that I started this podcast in October 2018 and it's now February 2022. And in that time, there's been over 5,000 downloads of this podcast. I just want to record my gratitude to you all who listen, to the people who've been the guests on it, And I just feel so pleased that we've been able to look at these themes of anxiety and depression and mental health in relation to poetry. And the great connector of those has been vulnerability. I hope I've been true to the vulnerability that I talk about and I look forward to uh, exploring in this podcast and in subsequent podcasts, the elements of mental health and poetry and what they say to us about the lives that we lead. Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. By way of introduction to the theme of this podcast, I wanted to say something about the name of the podcast, the Anxious Poets Podcast. It tells a truth about me. I am anxious. I think I've been anxious for most of my life. When I think about my youth and my adolescence, I worried about things that that my friends and people around me didn't seem to worry about half as much. And I used to put that down to the fact that my dad had a stroke when I was nine and then he died when I was 11. So the things that other people worry about later in life were introduced to me early in life. But to be honest, I think I always had the disposition towards anxiety. I've got a very thin skin in a lot of ways. And I've, I'm, I feel very sensitive to what's going on around me. Which sort of leads to the other part of the name, the Anxious Poets Podcast. I always feel a little bit um, of imposter syndrome giving myself the name Poet. Um, poets are people who who write for Faber and Faber and, um, uh, you know, are on Radio 4. I'm, I write poetry. But it is more than that to me. It's a way of life. Poetry encourages you to look at the world in a particular way, to notice the imagery and the metaphors that are generated or that, uh, that that surround you in your life and to really think about them, to feel them, to be the embodiment of them and to try and put that on paper. The fierce jeopardy of living, I talk about in the, in the poem, The Call of the Unwritten, so, so I can record the fierce jeopardy of living so others can, can experience it. And that's what poetry has done for me. It's told me truths. It's told me about the world and the way the world is in a way that I can assent to that. In the film, The History Boys, the the teacher, Hector, he's talking to one of the boys and and he talks about the way uh, almost a hand reaches out and touches you from from the pages of poetry that could have been written hundreds of years before 
and you have this human connection with the writer in a moment of empathy or sympathy um, where where there is a deep connection a veracity truthfulness so that's what I'm working towards the theme of this podcast is truthfulness experiencing the truth of something and I think in the the world that we're living in that's hugely important for reasons that I'm going to go on to speak about in a minute so the anxious poets podcast is a, is is telling a truth about my life um that I hope in the way that I've just described resonates with other people so that they can think oh yeah I experienced that I've been through that yes these valleys and vicissitudes are are worth traversing it's worth trying to keep on trying to find hope trying to find connection so the poem I want to start with is by Seamus Heaney who I I just think is one of the greatest poets of our time and it's a very early poem of his called Digging Digging Between my finger and my thumb the squat pen rests snug as a gun Under my window a clean rasping sound when the spade sinks into gravelly ground my father digging I look down till his straining rump among the flower beds bends low comes up twenty years away stooping in rhythm through potato drills where he was digging the coarse boot nestled on the lug the shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly he rooted out tall tops buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked loving their cool hardness in our hands by god the old man could handle a spade just like his old man my grandfather cut more turf in a day than any other man on toner's bog once i carried him milk in a bottle corked sloppily with paper he straightened up to drink it then fell to right away nicking and slicing neatly heaving sods over his shoulder going down and down for the good turf digging the cold smell of potato mould the squelch and slap of soggy peat the curt cuts of an edge through living roots awaken in my head but I've no spade to follow men like them between my finger and my thumb the squat pen rests I'll dig with it between my finger and my thumb the squat pen rests I'll dig with it such a great poem knowing that Heaney was from Northern Ireland that first line between my finger and my thumb the squat pen rests snug as a gun he immediately alerts you to his background to where he comes from to the truth of the north of Ireland and then takes you back through his family tree through his father and his grandfather men of earth men of simple means and the way that his grandfather dug the peat which um, when I went to the west of Ireland with the peat fires the smell is such a evocative smell and and that that boy carrying the milk bottle to his grandfather caught sloppily with paper it's just a lovely image of um, innocence and what he has inherited from them just at the end the cold smell of potato mold the squelch and slap of soggy peat such onomatopoeia there the curt cuts of an edge through living roots his living roots awaken in my head i've no spade to follow men like them 
Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, not as a gun, but I'll dig with it, it's a spade. Poetry is a spade. It gets to the roots of things. In a short space of time, in a few lines, he's got to the root of himself and to, to his uh, setting out his stall as the poet he will be. He'll dig with that, with that pen, with that nib. He'll get under the surface of what's going on in the world, what's going on in his world, and, and he'll tell us about it. He'll make reports from the front line of the truth of life. And, and that's, in a very humble way, I don't mean that as, as being horribly self-effacing. I mean... You know, in my own attempt, this podcast is, is trying to dig. It's trying to get under the surface of things. And, and the thing that I'm interested in in this podcast is truthfulness. I've listened, like most people, um, over the past two or three years, four years, to the political discourse and felt horrified to be frank, uh, 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 the mendacity and willingness to jettison any idea of veracity, of truth, any idea that, that there is a resonant echo between the truth of someone's experience with the truth of someone else's experience. It seems to have stopped being about that and it's about what what tribe you're from, what, um, what team you follow, what you'll pin your colours to your emotional mast about and then you won't resile from that, you won't back off from that for anything because these are, this is my tribe and we're right whether we're right or not, um, and whether whether someone pulls holes in our argument, it doesn't matter, because if they pull holes in our argument, well, we'll attack them, we'll attack the person, not their argument, we'll attack them. And, and it's corrosive. It's incredibly corrosive. That's why we need poets to tell us the truth about the world we live in in a way that is coming from their inner experience, that inner tuning fork that vibrates when something affects them or challenges them. They see an image and it seems to speak a truth about the world. So I want to read you another um, great poet, Simon Armitage, in a book called The, the Unaccompanied. Um, and and thanks to Heather, a friend of mine, for putting me onto this poem. It is genius. It's called Thank You for Waiting. And I want you to imagine that little bing bong, if, uh, if you're lucky enough to have flown to lovely places, or even not so lovely places, when you're sitting in an aircraft, uh, in a, an airport, you hear the bing bong of the announcement. So imagine that sound. Thank you for waiting. Thank you for waiting. At this moment in time, we'd like to invite first class passengers only to board the aircraft. Thank you for waiting. We now extend our invitation to exclusive, superior, privilege and Excelsior members, followed by triple, double and single platinum members, followed by gold and silver card members, followed by Pearl and Coral Club members. Military personnel in uniform may also board at this time. Thank you for waiting. We now invite Bronze Alliance members and passengers enrolled in our Rare Earth Metals Points and Rewards Scheme to come forward and thank you for waiting. Thank you for waiting. 
accredited beautiful people may now board, plus any gentleman carrying a copy of this month's Cigar Aficionado magazine, plus subscribers to our Red Diamond, Black Opal or Blue Garnet promotion. We also welcome Sapphire, Ruby and Emerald members at this time, followed by Amethyst, Onyx, Obsidian, Jet, Topaz and Quartz members. Priority Lane customers, Fast Track customers, Chosen Elite customers, Preferred Access customers and First Among Equals customers may also now board. On production of a valid receipt, travellers of elegance and style wearing designer and or hand-tailored clothing to a minimum value of $10,000 may now board. Passengers in possession of items of jewellery, including wristwatches, with a retail purchase price greater than the average annual salary of a mid-career high school teacher are also welcome to board. Also welcome at this time are passengers talking loudly into cell phone headsets about recently completed share deals, property acquisitions and aggressive takeovers, plus hedge fund managers with proven track records in the undermining of small to medium sized ambitions. Passengers in classes Loam, Chalk, Marl and Clay may also board. Customers who have purchased our Dignity or Morning Orchid packages may now collect their sanitised shell suits prior to boarding. Thank you for waiting. Mediocre passengers are now invited to board, followed by passengers lacking business acumen or genuine leadership potential, followed by people of little or no consequence, followed by people operating at a net fiscal loss as people. Those holding tickets for zones rust, mulch, cardboard, puddle and sand might now want to begin gathering their tissues and crumbs prior to embarkation. Passengers either partially or wholly dependent on welfare or kindness, please have your travel coupons validated at the quarantine desk. Sweat, dust, shoddy, scurf, faeces, chaff, Remnant, ash, pus, sludge, clinker, splinter and soot. All you people are now free to board. <laughs> Genius. Genius. What a clever poem. What a clever way of telling us the truth. It's such a, a powerful experience being in an airport and he just captures that class-ridden, wealth-orientated system upon which airlines function. And he does it in such a way that that you can just grab hold of it and and there's an irrefutability about the way he tells the truth um that's what good poetry can do it gets under your skin and challenges your worldview poetry anxiety and vulnerability this is the anxious poets podcast and there's the problem with politics as it's being played out at the moment, certainly in the UK, and it seems so in the US even more, is that not only do people not want their worldview to be challenged, they want their worldview to be rammed down the throats of everybody. They want to control the way people view the world according to their agenda. And when something happens that... that goes against that worldview, against that agenda, or people point out the problems with that worldview and agenda, rather than engage in a debate about the ideas or the philosophy or the outworking of these ideas, they attack the person that's criticising them. We've just had a very powerful case of that where the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, 
made a very powerful speech in the House of Commons pointing out the problems with what the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, had been doing over what happened in Downing Street over the lockdowns. And rather than engage with his arguments, he attacked Keir Starmer with something untrue, but raised the, the spectre of one of the worst child abu or abuse cases in our recent history, the Jimmy Savile case, and somehow tried to tar Keir Starmer with that brush. And that, there, there you hit the problem, because then it, it mushrooms and goes out of the control of the people who say the things. And then Keir Starmer gets attacked and death threats for failing to deal with Jimmy Savile, a case with which he had little or no contact and no power to do anything about it. And then you get into that tit-for-tat world of politics where all the water is muddied and, and, and sullied. That's where the power of poetry to challenge the worldview, the power of art to challenge worldviews. But it requires something. It requires vulnerability. It requires people to be prepared to say, I don't know. I'm unsure. I'm, I, 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 I want to hear what you've got to say about this, about what you experience, so that we can build on that. And I, I was reading a, a while ago a fantastic book by a, a, a Scotsman, Darren McGarvey, called Poverty Safari. I may well have quoted this before on this podcast. Um, working class, grew up on a housing estate, and tells a powerful, truthful story. It's not poetry, although there's a brilliant po poem at the beginning not by him, called The Liaison Coordinator, which is all about the sort of people parachuted into an area. I can't read it because it's written in Scottish dialect. Wilma could read it to you. Um, but it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. But he, he, in prose, is asking some powerful questions, getting under the skin of things. And here, uh, here's a great piece of writing. We cannot hope to rebuild our communities, Darren says our movements, or any viable society for that matter, without the ability to scrutinise and debate our own ideals. Not for the sake of navel-gazing, but for the sake of establishing basic facts. There is no virtue in shooting down other people's bad ideas unless we occasionally turn the guns on our own, both as individuals and as movements. Scrutiny of our beliefs, motives and actions scrutiny of how circumstances and self-interest subtly directs our thinking and scrutiny of how we often believe in the legitimacy of our own fears and resentments while mocking or dismissing those of others to whom we regard ourselves superior. I used to believe that anger alone, fueled by a deep sense of unfairness about the conditions of my life, would be enough to change my circumstances for the better. But many of the conditions of my life began to change when I got less offended by the truth. Some of my problems are mine to solve. The new frontier for individuals and movements who want to radically change society is to first recognise the need for radical change within themselves. The other good thing about examining your own attitudes and beliefs and how they shape your experience and steer the direction of your life is that you don't need an agency or a charity to parachute in and tell you what to do. It doesn't cost a penny and you can begin right away. The other good thing about examining your own attitudes and beliefs and how they shape your experience and steer the direction of your life. Wow. Now that's what good writing, good poetry does. It makes you look at your own beliefs and how, how things have have governed you and analyse them and tell the truth about them so that something can change. Writing poetry helped me to change the way I looked at my anxiety, helped me to befriend it, helped me to 
delve into my unconscious and see why I'd had such an eruption. If you read anything by Jung, especially recently they have published um, his journals. So there's, there's things called the Red Book, which was all his experiences around the time of the First World War written up beautifully with incredible artwork that he did himself about his dreams and about the eruption of his unconscious into his conscious life and the black books which are the original notebooks but you can see there someone uh, dealing with all those attitudes and directions of their life how they've emerged and where they've come from and having a, an inner dialogue with all those forces inside himself um, and I, I think that's a very powerful thing to do and I, you know in the cut and thrust of the House of Commons maybe that's not something you can do but if you don't do that at some point in your life then you become a danger you become someone unable to look inward and ask questions and be questioned and when someone stops being able to be questioned that's that's the road to to ruin i think i wrote this poem before my breakdown actually but but probably because of um having spiritual direction having different forms of therapy doing spiritual direction with people uh, you realize that that you have to deal with stuff this is called the pond it's a bit you know there's a warning here, it's a bit grim. The pond. The pump malfunctioned at exactly the wrong time, late February, when icing over is still a constant danger. I was shocked to step out and find the whole surface of the pond thick with a frozen crust like an icy pie. Trapped beneath this and coldly baked, were all the frogs that arrive each year to engage in mating, leaving their tapioca of spawn, lacing the water with potential tadpoles, and subsequently a newness of frogs, but not this year. The worst part of the affair was that when the water was released from its hardness, in turn it released all the dead frogs, about 100 of them, and they began to rot and putrefy poisoning the pond, killing all but one of my goldfish. I had to don high-wading wellingtons and long rubber gloves made for the purpose and step into the pond. The smell was fetid, causing retching as I bucketed out frogs and water right down to the mud at the bottom. My one remaining fish swimming in its little plastic bucket of tap water. The bodies of the frogs had to be burned on a bonfire the plants reseated, and then finally a generous refilling, returning the golden fish to its solitary water. The pond slowly has come back to life. I bought a new pump, bigger and better, and more companions for my fish. The little ecosystem rebalanced itself. This year the frogs returned, fewer in number, but just as wanton and producing as much spawn as before the frog's apocalyptic icy cull. I meet too many people who have never cleared their ponds after a malfunction and they stink of frog carcasses. This year the frogs have returned fewer in number but just as wanton and producing as much spawn as before the frog's apocalyptic icy cull. I meet too many people who have never cleared their ponds after a malfunction and they stink of frog carcasses. That's a grim image, but it, it's purposely shocking to get at what I'm trying to say. If we don't deal with those challenges that get under our skin, we become full of fetid, difficult stuff. And if we don't face it, then we almost 
um, inevitably project it onto other people. And we see those darknesses in others rather than look at them in ourselves. It's the whole nature of projection, the projection of the shadow. And when you see it writ large in our politics, it's so depressing and so uh, troubling and challenging. And, and that is something worth asking deep questions about. Those who are not prepared to ask those deep questions inevitably get caught up in untruth, lying. The first person they probably lie to is themselves about their own abilities or about where they stand in the world, who they are in the world. And then they start lying to other people. And then when caught out, then they try and draw other people, especially in politics, into their untruth. And when you join someone in their untruth, you also inevitably become a liar yourself. And, and I use that word advisedly because there is a process that goes on, an incremental process that goes on within a person who begins to move away from that inner veracity of their own experience. The soul revolves around the deepest part of us, around the self. And that orbit is very important. If you allow your soul to start revolving around something other than that deep veracity, then this incremental process goes on where you become more and more blind, more and more aggressive. And you, as, as, as a child, you learn when you tell one lie, you have to keep telling them to protect the original lie. I once had an experience. I was out with my mates when I was, I don't know, 12. And they were all in the habit of, of pilfering from the local off license. And I never wanted to do it, but because they were all saying, oh, we get away with it all the time, it's free sweets. He's got loads of money, it doesn't matter. Mr. Broadhead, his name was. So I thought, oh, go on then. And that was the first lie that I went against that inner part of me that said, don't do it. It's not right. And I went to steal a five penny Cadbury's bar. And of course, Mr. Broadhead caught me and he gave me a right dressing down. He was a wrestler um, in the days of Jackie Pello and Mick McManus. And uh, he was a big stocky guy and he gave me a right dressing down and um, and I felt terrible. And my mates were not helpful. Um, they were all like, oh, you got caught, you prat and all this sort of stuff. <clears throat> and um, anyway, I, we went back home and we were playing football in my garden and suddenly the door opens and my mother standing at the doorway says Adrian come in and your friends can go home now and I thought oh no I'm in for it now and I went and said Mr Broadhead has phoned me um, because he was worried about you what did you do and and I thought I, I, I can lie here I can I can compound that first lie with another one it wasn't me I didn't do it, he blamed me, my mates were doing it. I thought of a myriad of lies and then I looked at my mum and <laughs> she was a shrewd woman and, and you didn't mess with it. And I just said, yeah, mum, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. And, and then she sort of calmed down and she said, well, I'm glad you're sorry. I hope this is a lesson. Um, because he said, if he caught you again, he would call the police. I don't know whether that was true or not. He would have been within his rights to do so. Um, but I really learned something 
in that moment about the vulnerability that is required to tell the truth and and it and it stayed with me it wasn't one of those you know and then i learned not to tell lies anymore it was it was more i understood the inner topography of telling the truth it requires vulnerability humility humiliation courage and then it releases you into learning something about yourself and about the world around you which is really important and so the the incremental mechanism of lying is corrosive and very powerful so once you start lying to yourself and then to other people if it becomes part of your in in our in the case of politics part of your political narrative then you either have to allow the truth in and the whole thing breaks down or you have to recruit more and more people into this process and your soul orbits more and more the lie and and more and more that means it starts to disintegrate it starts to become fragmented it doesn't have a lodestone a compass point to act from and that's what we're seeing at the moment that's what we're witnessing in our politics and it is ferociously dangerous you only have to look at history of of uh, you know of the 1930s to know what happens when a lie becomes the thing that people's souls revolve around it is really dangerous i was recently reading a book by jeremy paxman of um, university challenge fame and newsnight a ferocious interrogator of politicians um i'm not sure why i chose to write this book but it's called black gold the history of how coal made britain um and and i really really uh have enjoyed reading it partly because my dad was from a mining area ashington and also because um I lived in Maltby in a mining town all through the strike on and off and saw what mining was like firsthand. And you, uh, you're probably wondering what's that got to do with, with the soul revolving around the truth and all that. Well, he quotes in this book, it's a real good sort of uh, history of mining and how dependent this country was on coal. Um, and to get to the real root of what mining was like, he quotes George Orwell in The Road to Wigan Pier, which I've subsequently read, um, a, a, the beginning of which is a brilliant um, exploration into poverty and northern working class communities in the 1930s. Um, it, 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 and, <laughs> and the town that comes out of it worst is Sheffield. He says Wigan's bad, but you want to see Sheffield. Um, and Sheffield people being what they are, I bet they're even proud of how horrible it is. Um, and he talks about the stench of the steelworks. This is a place founded on steel, surrounded by coal, using coal all the time. He says at one point he looks across the road and he can see 30 chimneys belching smoke into the atmosphere. Um, the great thing about Orwell, for me, as a writer is he has this sort of veracity. He was a, 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 an upper-class person, highly educated, but was able to sort of sidestep himself and stand away from his upbringing and become so, somewhat transparent so people would allow him into their lives. And then he could watch what was going on and report it with that sort of inner veracity inner truthfulness um, and and this is his description it's, it's, it's fairly long of what mining was like in the 1930s 
It is impossible to watch the fillers at work without feeling a pang of envy for their toughness. It is a dreadful job that they do, an almost superhuman job by the standards of ordinary people. For they are not only shifting monstrous qualities of coal, they are doing it in a position that doubles or trebles the work. They've got to remain kneeling all the while. Shoveling is comparatively easy when you are standing up, because you can use your knee and thigh to drive the shovel along. Kneeling down, the whole of the strain is thrown upon your arm and belly muscles. And the other conditions do not exactly make things easier. There is the heat. It varies, but in some minds it is suffocating. And the coal dust that stuffs up your throat and nostrils and collects along your eyelids and the unending rattle of the conveyor belt, which in that confined space is rather like the rattle of a machine gun. But the fillers look and work as though they were made of iron. They really do look like iron, hammered iron statues, under the smooth coat of coal dust which clings to them from head to foot. It is only when you see the miners down the mine and naked that you realise what splendid men they are. Most of them are small, big men are at a disadvantage in that job, but nearly all of them have the most noble bodies, wide shoulders tapering to slender supple waists and small pronounced buttocks and sinewy thighs with not an ounce of waist flesh anywhere. You can hardly tell by the look of them whether they are young or old. They may be any age up to 60 or even 65, but when they are black and naked they all look alike. No one could do their work who had not a young man's body and a figure fit for a guardsman at that. Just a few pounds of extra flesh on the waistline and the constant bending would be impossible. You can never forget that spectacle once you have seen it. The line of bowed kneeling figures, sooty black all over, driving their huge shovels under the coal with stupendous force and speed. They are on the job for seven and a half hours, theoretically without a break, for there is no time off. Actually, they snatch a quarter of an hour or so at some time during the shift to eat the food they brought with them, usually a hunk of bread and dripping and a bottle of cold tea. The first time I was watching the fillers at work, I put my hand upon some dreadful slimy thing among the coal dust. It was a chewed quid of tobacco. Nearly all the miners chew tobacco, which is said to be good against thirst. Wow. What an amazing description. Just a very honest portrayal of what he's seeing in front of him. This is the Anxious Poets podcast. And and those kind of descriptions, that kind of writing and journalism are what change things because they tell the story not objectively because it's coming through the, the, the medium, the prism of someone's life experience. Orwell had a lot of axes to grind and that second half of the Road to Wigan Pier is his sort of tirade about socialism which is worth reading it's definitely worth reading but that the first half of the book the description of the conditions of the working class in in 1930s britain is so honest and 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 in your face and it confronts people with the reality of how the stuff that they were all completely dependent upon was produced and who produced it and what the cost of that production was. That sort of writing is corrosive. It's, it's acidic to what I was describing earlier, the sort of political chicanery of lying. Unfortunately, when presented with that kind of truth, the, the, the mendacious people in politics these days would have just attacked Orwell. They wouldn't have attacked what he was saying, what he was writing about. They would have attacked him. And they probably did. Um, and, and, and found ways to undermine him as a human being rather than hear the truth of what he was saying. So that's what I want to, to move into in this last part of the podcast, is how do you stay 
in the right orbit? How do you, you allow your soul to orbit that inner pool of truthfulness within you? To, to resonate to the tuning fork of your own real, heartfelt, emotional, physical experience of being a human being. And I wrote this poem again in February. Good time for some poetry for me. And it's called Sedition. Sedition written on a February morning. Sedition, noun, conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against the authority of a state or monarch. Under the autocratic and uniform blanket of snow lie the seditious flowers waiting to ferment their thawing rebellion, to poke through this late February dictatorship of whiteness. You cannot subjugate a good snowdrop and even the daffodils in their yellow impudence are ready to demonstrate in phalanxes. Some radical camellias have escaped the straitjackets of their buds and are brazenly pinking it out in the veritable cold. We live much of our lives under that blanket of social snow, the autocracy of normality, the sovereignty of rationality, where our animal self is subjugated by technological absolutism. But the soul will out, you know. It is a seditious force, marshalling all the disparate, rebellious parts we exiled, sending them as drop spies by night, aiding the resistance. This is why we panic and get depressed. We are fermenting uprising against our Facebook page's need to repackage the uncontainable, to measure life in increments of progression towards conformity. There were those who, when the Roman emperors stopped persecuting them and press-ganged their faith into imperial servitude, ran off to the desert, living in red caves and up stone poles. The sedition went underground and surfaced in saints. And as without, so within. I want to open a dialogue to have secret talks under the radar with my own seditious elements. The sedition went underground and surfaced in saints, and as without, so within. I want to open a dialogue to have secret talks under the radar with my own seditious elements. There's something in that poem, some truth that I'm trying to express, and it's about the, the, the sedition of the soul. When you start to move away and, and have your soul revolve around something that isn't deeply true to your own self. And, and it's interesting to me, the word author, authenticity, authority, all have that auth part to them. The self. It's, it's when you have authority real authority is when people feel you're speaking the truth when you listen to that orwell quote you know he's telling you the truth as he sees it yes but the truth all the same it, it has the physical emotional thoughtful power of real experience but the soul will out, you know, it is a seditious force, marshalling all the disparate, rebellious parts we exiled, sending them as drop spies by night, aiding the resistance. This is why we panic and get depressed. We're fermenting uprising. When we move away from that central, deep pool of truthfulness, then the soul will become seditious and and all those images the rebellious parts sending them as drop spies by night fermenting uprising it all reminded me of the resistance of the second world war like the french resistance 
um, that was aided and abetted by the British uh, and the Americans, that that it, the soul is, is sending messages all the time to say, hey, there's something wrong here. This is not good. Um, come back. Come back to something more truthful. And, and there's, a, there's a great image in Harry Potter. Um, when Voldemort, in a, an attempt to, to create the lie of immortality, his own immortality, he creates these things called horcruxes. Horcruxes, can you say it? Horcruxes. And in order to create a horcrux, which is an, a, a, a physical thing like a ring or a bracelet or a diadem, uh, to imbue it with a part of his soul, he has to kill someone. That horrific act against nature splits a part of his soul off and it lodges into this other thing. So if his physical body, body is killed, there's still a part of him alive, but not a nice part because it's been created by killing. What a powerful metaphor for what's going on around us. What a powerful metaphor that is. Um, and it splits us. And, and there are bits of us that get split off when we, when we engage with the world. And it happens all the time because we, we can't bring everything that we have inside us to bear. Especially as you're growing up, you, you repress things, you, you keep things in the dark. And, and as you become older, part of the, the individuation process that Jung talked about, part of the process of becoming a full human being is to find those exiled parts uh, and help them to rise up and tell you the whole truth about yourself. This is why we panic and get depressed because we're not the Facebook presentation or the, the Instagram presentation of ourselves. We are something much more than that. And at the end of the poem, he used the metaphor, when Christianity became the accepted religion of the empire, Constantine had a conversion process and it became imperial religion. And, and his, his vision was the cross above a, ba a battlefield in this sign conquer. What greater lie do you want to hear than that? In the sign of the cross, conquer people really really that's what the sign of the cross is about a broken vulnerable political agitator no i don't think so and neither did a lot of other people and they went off into the deserts to find a thing that they called white martyrdom because they weren't being persecuted by the empire anymore they went to find a stripping a shriving a taking off of the masks, uh, a way of revolving around the deep pool of truthfulness inside themselves. And they lived in red caves and up stone poles. They lived alone a lot of the time. And they, they, there's an old saying, tell the truth and shame the devil. They, they sought to learn the truth about themselves, that they didn't need all the trappings that, that most of us think we need that they could live this fierce, in these fierce landscapes, they would find solace, as Belden Lane's lovely book is called, The Solace of Fierce Landscapes. And they were seditious. They didn't believe in the imperial story. And Jesus didn't believe in the imperial story either. He, he advocated uh, a, a way of living that was he called the kingdom of God, which you could translate as having your soul revolve around the things that matter, the things that bring life. As David White's Sweet Darkness poem says, the world, you must learn only one thing, the world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the world to which you belong. That's that inner pool of truthfulness. When you listen to your disparate elements, when you're introduced to them through great art or poetry, good writing, good television, good drama, then 
they emerge like saints, like those desert mothers and fathers. And at the end of the poem, as without, so within, I want to open a dialogue to have secret talks under the radar with my own seditious elements. I want to face myself and look into that well of truthfulness and find the way I'm being led and the way to tell my truth and the way to face my lies, to face my untruths and, and learn from them. Then, then things change, then I change, then other people change. I'd like to finish the podcast with a, another Heaney poem. Um, it's dedicated to his sons. It's called A Kite for Michael and Christopher. Just listen out for the metaphors about the soul in this poem. A Kite for Michael and Christopher. All through that Sunday afternoon, a kite flew above Sunday. A tightened drumhead, a flitter of blown chaff. I'd seen it grey and slippy in the making. I'd tapped it when it dried out, white and stiff. I'd tied the bows of newspaper along its six-foot tail. But now it was far up like a small black lark, and now it dragged as if the bellied string were a wet rope hauled upon to lift a shoal. My friend says that the human soul is about the weight of a snipe, yet the soul at anchor there, the string that sags and ascends, weighs like a furrow assumed into the heavens. Before the kite plunges down into the wood and this line goes useless, take in your two hands, boys, and feel the strumming, rooted, long-tailed pull of grief. You were born fit for it. Stand in here in front of me and take the strain. Take in your two hands, boys, and feel the strumming, rooted, long-tailed pull of grief. You were born fit for it. Stand in here, in front of me, and take the strain. What a wonderful poem. What a wonderful evocation of how one generation passes on everything about itself to the next one especially the long-tailed pull of grief. He's telling his boys the truth. But that middle stanza, my friend says that the human soul is about the weight of a snipe, yet the soul at anchor there, the string that sags and ascends, weighs like a furrow assumed into the heavens. It's going back to that digging, weighs like a ploughed furrow, something waiting for seeds and waiting for new life, assumed into the heavens, uplifted, brought up, heavenly. It's, it's such a powerful metaphor. So I invite us all to be seditious or to allow the sedition of the soul to take its effect upon us and draw us back to that what I, the metaphor I used of the, the soul orbiting around the pool of truthfulness, or hold on to that kite tail, uh, the kite rope, and, and feel the power of it pulling you up, pulling the furrow of your life that you have ploughed up into the heavens, into a, 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 a light-filled, beautiful place. That's the power of, of being truthful, of, of going deep into your own experience and being honest about it and finding the images that are like gold. Like Jeremy Paxman's book, Black Gold, that which is delved down deep from underground deep in the centre of yourself and brought up to the surface 
and powers the industry, the ingenuity, the sheer force of your living. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Once again, a big thank you for listening to the podcast. All the poems quoted um, are, are on the, the blurb that comes with the podcast, but also I'll put on my website the text of the poems that I wrote. Um, so you can go there and see all of that. That's www.adriangrscott.com. And if you want to buy any of the books that those poems were in, you can also do that. And there's plenty of other things to look at on the website. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.